Well, here we are. And some of you, you, uh, you left the, the comfy confines of the Leewood campus. Some of you left the beautiful architecture of the Brookside campus. And others of you left the many kids running around at the Olathe campus. And it's completely fine if when you walked in this morning, you thought to yourself, I've made a huge mistake. That the first time I walked into this space, I was with Patrick Largen, the, the worship pastor at, at Olathe, and we both agreed that the Shawnee campus would never meet here in a gym. And that was about four months ago. And if you had told me we'd be here this morning, this early in this space, I would have thought you were crazy. And so this morning, let's ask the question that we're all asking. What are we doing here? There's only one question to that answer, and that's this, this was God's idea. And I realize that's the exact sort of thing you'd expect a pastor to say, right? Trite, ridiculous, it's a cliche, pastors say things like that. And yet, I, I want to argue that's, that's really true, even though it's maybe trite, that this, this whole thing is it's God's idea. And that's what Paul is actually saying to the, the Corinthians here, that they had lost sight of that fact. That as we press into this book that we're going to look at over the next six months, we're going to go through this entire book of, of 1 Corinthians, this letter Paul wrote to this ancient church in Corinth. You're going to see that it was a church that had begun to be filled with pride and arrogance, looking down on, on others. And so Paul writes, and in the beginning he, remind, he writes them to remind them that this, none of it was their idea. And so as you read through these, these first nine verses in particular, all the verbs, they're passive. The Corinthians, they didn't do anything. They were, they were called by God. This wasn't their idea. Because the, the city of Corinth was really the last place you would have expected to find a church or for a church to start and thrive. The Corinth was located sort of in the, the middle of a bunch of trade routes on the middle of, of a couple sides of, of a sea. And so it was a town full of sailors, full of people just passing through, which meant it developed a terrible reputation for immorality and especially sexual immorality. The Corinthians, to be a Corinthian was not considered to be a good thing. But Paul went to Corinth because he was committed to starting new churches in new places. And one of the things my hope that you'll have from this experience, going through this, learning to start a new place, going through starting a new community, is that you'll read the book of Acts and you'll read the Bible with fresh eyes to understand what, why Paul and what Paul did in starting these new communities, why starting new churches was so important to him. Now he went to Corinth around 50 AD, about 15 to 20 years after Jesus had died and came out of the grave. And most likely, Paul spent about 18 months there teaching, preaching, building up, starting this new place. But after he left, things began to fall apart. And that's why Paul sat down to write this letter that we're going to look at over the next several months. They had written Paul a letter with questions. They knew they didn't know it all, and so they, they had some questions, they needed some help. But the letter that they wrote to Paul did not give an accurate reflection of the situation that was going on there. But you might have, have noticed Chloe and her household, Paul mentions them. They were friends of Paul and they went and visited Corinth. And when they visited, what they found was incredibly discouraging to them. That the place was full of arguing and bickering and all kinds of sin that just shocked them and discouraged them. And so Paul sits down to write this letter, a bit brokenhearted and sad. So it's a great place for us to start as a new church, right? And yet... There's something here that, that I hope we hear this morning. 
that Paul's saying to this church, God has called you together. God is going to keep you together. So you need to work with God in that process. And that's what we need to hear. Paul would say the same thing to us this morning, even though we might not have all the baggage they have yet. Um, He would say the same thing to us. God has called us here. God will keep us together. And you and I, we need to work with God in that process. So let's look at this passage under those headings. He called us together. He will keep us together. And how we can work with him. Well, first, he he called us here. That the Corinthians were guilty of a problem that many Christians are guilty of. That after a while, their their church began to flourish. And it was filled with gifted people. They had great preachers, probably great worship leaders, great prayers. They were filled with gifted gifted Christians. And Paul acknowledges that. He says, listen, you're, you're a gifted church. You're lacking no spiritual gift. And like what often happens when Christians, when God starts to use us or when we start to see great things happen through our lives, we begin to think it was, it was our idea. Right? That, that we're the good ones, we're the special ones. God uses us for a reason because he looked out over the world and he, he saw me. And who wouldn't want to use me? So they begin to get filled with pride, with arrogance. And that's what leads to their division, their bickering. Right? And it's an experience. My guess is if I talk to any one of you and your church life, your church experience, I guarantee you, you have a story of, of someone who was a great Christian person who, who just knew their Bible or, or served the church, and yet they looked down on you. They were discouraging to you. They were arrogant or prideful people. That's what happens. And that's what Paul is trying to remind them. Listen, none of this was your idea. That's why I mentioned in verses 1 through 9, everything he says about them is it's passive. They didn't do anything. He says they were, they were called, they were sanctified, they were enriched. All of that was done to them. None of this was their idea. And so I want to pull out a couple things that Paul mentions to them, things I hope we hear. That, that one, they were sanctified, that God sanctified those Corinthian Christians. And that secondly, he called them to be saints together with all those who in every place call in the name of Jesus. So it's sanctified, and their Christians were sanctified, were called. Right, so sanctified, that's obviously a churchy word. My guess is you have not used it in a long time. And even hearing it said, it just, it, what does it mean? What does it mean to be, to be sanctified? Well, Paul is, is here drawing on an Old Testament idea. That in the Old Test- Testament, if you, you worshiped God, you went to a temple. And at the temple there in particular, they had, they had sacrifices, a lot of which were burnt. And so you needed shovels and tongs to deal with the offerings. And so they had special shovels and tongs that they sanctified, set apart, that could only be used in the temple for worship. And these weren't special shovels or tongs. They didn't have magical powers. They didn't look any different. They were just normal shovels, normal tongs that for whatever reason had been consigned into use at the temple. Sanctified, set apart. That's what Paul is saying to these Corinthians. You You were sanctified. God chose you, a normal person, and set you aside to do his work, to be saved, to go and preach his gospel. It's not because you were special. It's not because you were unique. It's because he set you apart. That we, all of us, were God's idea. If you're a Christian, it was not your idea. It was his. And so we're sanctified. That's first. But secondly, we're called to be saints. Now, to be a Christian is to be called. And that's why Paul even begins the letter by reminding them that he was called, right? And he starts, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And if you remember Paul's story, he didn't have much interest in Jesus or the church. In fact, he was persecuting the church, persecuting Jesus. And so what happens is he's on his way to go arrest some Christians, and God literally knocks him down, blinds him, and says, instead of persecuting Christians, you're going to go and start churches, So Paul becomes the greatest church planner that ever lived. And none of it was his idea. 
In fact, he was doing precisely the opposite until God called him. And so I want to make sure none of us miss that this morning. That, that none of us are Christians because it was our idea. Right? And I know there's, there's, there's mystery there between divine sovereignty, God choosing us, and human responsibility, us coming before having faith in him. I don't know how that works out. But I, I do know this. If you're a Christian, it wasn't your idea. Now, maybe you had great parents that, that led you to faith. Well, you didn't choose those parents. Or maybe it was, it was someone in your life that just knew the right things to say or gave you a good book to read. Well, you didn't pick that person to be so brilliant in your life. Or maybe you see your conversion. It's a long progression, lots of things that have happened that led you to a place where you're in, in faith in Christ. And I, I promise you, you didn't orchestrate that process. Someone else did. That if you're a Christian, it was, it was God's idea. The two most defining moments of, of my life, why I'm a Christian, are because someone asked me a question that annoyed me and because someone didn't say a curse word in my ninth grade geometry class. And I know I told the, the ninth grade geometry class story a few weeks ago in Olathe, so I can't repeat that, although I love it. It's, it's a good story. Um, but I do want to talk about the question. And I'm not sure if I've, I've told, I know I've told this to some of you, but when I was in eighth grade, um, I went drum shopping with our youth pastor because our church was, was starting a worship band. It was sort of at the, the beginning of, of churches, you know, using worship bands. And I was the only drummer in the entire church, which meant I, I got to go and pick out the drums. Um, and so you might have noticed a common theme now in this church where once again, I'm the only drummer yet again. And so we're praying for more drummers or maybe more preachers. Maybe I should just not preach and play drums. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but, but so I was the only drummer, got to go pick them out. And so we, we finished, we were eating Taco Bell in the church van, and normally it's a great way to get me to say yes to anything you want me to do is buy me some drums and feed me Taco Bell. Um, that will do it. And, and so we're doing, we're, we're eating, and he asked me a question that really annoyed me. As a youth pastor, he looked at me and he said, Tim, have you, have you ever considered going into ministry? I'm like, no, it's a horrible idea. I would never do that. Right, that was my thing. Initially, I was annoyed because it was like, you know, and we pastors, we do this, and I'm sorry, but we put, we ask questions, and it just, it's like pressure on you, like we want you to do this, and it's God's asking you because I'm asking, and it's not, that's not true at all, but it kind of feels that way, right? And so I, he asked me, I feel pressure, and that was a part of why the question annoyed me. But the real reason the question annoyed me is because that was, I can say that was the first moment in my life I really sensed the presence of God actually telling me that is what you're going to do. That it wasn't just me and Jeff, my youth pastor, in that conversation. There was a third party that intruded himself. And for whatever reason, just made it clear, that's, that's what I'm calling you to. That's your life. That's where you're headed. And it was really annoying. I would have never chosen that, that life for myself. I would have never asked myself that question. And yet, the reality is, that, that question didn't just lead to me being a pastor. It also, in many ways, kept me... In Christianity, as a Christian, it always, for some reason, I just knew, I had this moment where I couldn't, could not remove God from my life. And even when the church became a less compelling place to me in, in, in my early high school years, not really, really wanting to be a part of the church, that question in that moment, it was always there. I could not get away from it. And that question really defined my high school. It defined where I went to college. It defined who I'm, I'm married. It defined why I'm standing here and why we're going to live in Kansas City, why this is our home. It's defined so much of my life, and none of it was my idea. That me being a Christian, it was not my idea. I would not have ended up here had God not intervened. That's something we need to hear. That my guess is if I asked any of you up here to tell your story, there'd be something similar. 
Someone else intervened. Someone else said something. Something else happened that you did not see coming, that impacted you in a way you never would have imagined. That none of us are here because it was our idea. And that's not just true of us individually. It's true of us as a church here this morning, as a new campus getting started. And that's why I love when Paul tells the Corinthians there who are bickering, they're divided, they're, they're arguing with one another. He, he reminds them, you are called to be saints together. Right? Not individually. You're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Called to be saints together. That We, this church, any church, but this church, the Shawnee campus, it's God's idea. And again, I know it's the exact sort of thing you'd expect a pastor to say, but it's so true in the last several months, this whole process, which for me, the, the, the process up to this day has been over a year long. I mean, the first conversations were about a year ago when, when we were thinking about planning this campus. So this has been a long process to this day for me. And I could say, having been the only one who was there for that long, God has been the one whose idea this has been, been from the beginning. I, I mentioned this in Olathe. My, my assumption kind of from the beginning was, you know, many of you, we knew you lived this way. And so we had you on a list. We were praying for you. Or I was praying for you, hoping that after the announcement came, you know, I might be able to get some time with you, wine you, dine you, charm you, make you laugh, make you think I'm special or something. I don't know. Um, and I thought that was going to be the process, and I'd convince you um, after maybe threatening. I don't know how we'd, that would work out, but we'd convince you eventually to, be, to come. And yet none of that happened. Right? For, for basically everyone in this room, our first conversation was you telling me um, that you're in. That the first conversation actually about this campus was before it even existed. And I, was, I, didn't, I should have mentioned this in first service, but I'll mention it now. Um, that Nate Hart actually is the first member of this campus. He told me, if you, if you start a church, I want to help. I want to be a part of it. And so Nate actually knew about it in some way before I did, right? And, and so I didn't have to talk him into doing it. I didn't have to talk any of you into doing it. That's not how the process worked out at all. Instead it was, we're in. How can we help? And that's been blown my mind. Um, but, but there was one family I, I did try to convince to come, to make the move. And I did charm them. And I made them laugh. And they think I'm great. And they're not coming. <laughs> And that's the only people I really was like, we, we need you to come. Can you be a part of this? Just didn't feel a part of, of God's call in, in their life. And so the only people that I tried to get to come, they didn't. So I just, I failed, right? And so I can, I can be here knowing this is God's idea. You're here because God's called you to for whatever reason, whatever story that, that, that God has led you here. We're here to start this place together. And God's going to use all of us to contribute to this place. And yet, if we're not careful, what Paul says to these Corinthians, that they're, they're called to be saints, right? That, that can easily lead to pride, can it? Right? Like I said, Christians, when God starts to use us or when we start to think God has set us aside, to, it, it can so easily lead to arrogance and pride and think that we're somehow unique or special because of who we are in and of ourselves. And yet, we're called to be saints. God called us here to this place. It wasn't our idea. But more than that, I love the way he defines Christians at the second part of verse 2 there. When he says Christians, right, we're those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's who a Christian is, someone who calls on the name of Jesus for help. Who knows we can't do it. We're weak, that we have to come in total dependence of God. That's why one, or my main prayer for us as a church, is we'll be a place of prayer. That we have to be. That's why we started this morning with having Alex pray for us. Because we can't, I mean, we may, we may have lots of gifts in this room. There's lots of great people 
in this room, but this is on him. And we're a people as Christians who call on the name of Jesus, right? That, that's who we are. We know we need help. We know we need to live in dependence of him. So that's who a Christian is, is someone who calls in the name of Jesus. Because he is the one who sanctified us, set us apart, called us here. So that raises the question, okay, well, how, how can we stay together? How can we keep together? Especially when we read this letter where the church is already bickering just a few years after they started. Well, moving on to point two, God will keep us together. And what Paul begins to press into is something that I've noticed as a pastor, that a lot of times Christians, our greatest problems are our greatest strengths. And that was true of the Corinthians here in this moment. That Paul acknowledges, he says, I give thanks to God for you, that in verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Verse 7, so that you were not lacking in any spiritual gift. You're a gifted people. You can do lots of things. You are great. And yet it was those very things that led them to bicker and to fight. The trap that, that I just want to warn us against this morning, that as, as God will use you in the many ways he will use you in this place, Right? That, that, that should lead us to humility, that he would call us and use us never to pride that somehow we were unique or special in our own right. That the church had begun to think they had arrived, that they were special, that they were unique, and it led them into all kinds of sin, which we'll get to, get to talk about. It'll be, it'll be fun. Um, that they were, they were suing one another as a church. That some of the Christians in the church were sleeping with prostitutes, and others were saying that married people shouldn't have sex. Right? That, that then he even has to speak to, to homosexuality, and so that will be a great Sunday. Um, I can't wait. Um, that was sarcastic, um, just in case that, that was lost. Um, but he has to speak to those. And, and more than that, um, like I said, they're suing one another. When they take communion together, the rich start eating first, and they eat all the food and drink all the wine. So when the poor finally get off work and get to communion, the rich people are there bloated and drunk. Now, this is not a great moment in the life of the church. So it's a great place for us to start as a new church, right? Read about this, this place that was, that was messed up. And yet, that's, that's a great place to start because that's why we titled the series A Beautiful Mess, The Beautiful Mess. That's what the church is. We're, we're beautiful, we're sanctified, called in the fellowship of Jesus, and yet we're also we're a mess. Our good things often lead us to pride and arrogance and division. And so don't miss where Paul starts his letter to them. It really should surprise us. I mean, pastors, right, there are lots of pastors that if the church is doing sinful things, right, they start yelling at people. Um, there's a great YouTube video of some guy who just, it's actually not great, but it's, it's funny um, in a bad way, of a guy, a pastor just goes off on his church um, there, and they videotaped it and put it on YouTube, not sure why, um, but you should, you should watch it, and that's, pastors do that, right? We, we get mad, we tell off, or at least we shouldn't do that, and, and yet Paul doesn't do that here. He has every right to, to lay into them from the beginning, but he doesn't. Instead, he says in verse 6, the Lord Jesus, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of judgment, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God is faithful, by whom you are called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the reason that they will stay together is because this was, this was God's idea. And he's going to take the mess in them, and there's plenty of it, and he's going to make it beautiful. He's going to take these normal people and form them into a congregation, into a church that will spend eternity in worship and praise of their God. And Paul can say all this because they are there. They are Christians because it was God's idea from the beginning. 
And I realize that, that that leaves a question unanswered for many of us, especially those of us maybe who've been hurt or deeply disrespected or frustrated by the church. Right? Why is the church often a place of such hypocrisy and judgment and arrogance pride? There's lots of ways to answer that question, but I would, the main reason I would give is, and I don't want us to miss this this morning, it, it, it's because of our message. The gospel attracts messed up people. That's sort of the point of the gospel. That this message will not be, the gospel will not be very compelling to you if you think you have your life together. That if you think you're basically a decent person that's better than most of the other people you encounter, like the weird people you work with, the annoying neighbor that blows his leaves into your yard, you're better than those people. If that's the way you live through life, if you think you're a decent, hardworking American who does your fair share, the gospel just does not, will not entice you. It will not intrigue you. It has nothing to say to you. But if you know the deep in, inside of you is this propensity to mess things up, to frustrate people, that in moments you mean to encourage them when you actually discourage them, that you say harsh things to the people you love the most, if you know that in you is this propensity just to mess your life up, mess your job up, mess your family up, if you just know that, the gospel is really the only thing that you have in this life. It's the only good news. It's the only good news that there is. And that means Christianity will attract people that are broken. People that are likely to divide once good things start happening in their lives. The Christianity will attract sinners like me and like you. That's why when Jesus came, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The healthy don't need a doctor. That's why I've come for the sick. Of course, the irony there was that Jesus was saying, there's not really anyone that's healthy. You think you're healthy, but you're not. That's why Jesus came, and that's why his gospel attracts broken people. And that's why the church will often be a messy place. It'll be a place where someone will say hurtful things, where hypocrisy will come out, arrogance and pride. It'll happen in this space. And I pray against it. I pray against it in my own heart, but it'll happen. And in those moments, I just encourage you, don't run away from the church. Run towards Because this is the only place that can look at anyone, right, at anyone, and say to them, God is faithful, and he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're the only place that can say that, which means when broken people come, it's not a reason to thumb our noses and think we're better or more sophisticated or more spiritual than them, but that's a place to go and love and serve, because Jesus loves someone like that. His name well, it was Tim, it was, it was me. It's the good news of the gospel. That we, all of us, were God's idea. He called us here. He will keep us together through the cross, through the gospel. And, and finally, we, as a church, we need to work with him through this process, right? So how, how do we as a church work with God as he creates this new sp- space, this new place of worship? Well, in verses 10 through 17, Paul begins to unpack a lot of the divisions that are happening there. And we're going to skip over some of that because 1 Corinthians 3, Paul dives more into detail as to what's happening there. And so we'll spend more time there this week. But he does say a couple of things that I don't want us to miss in verse 10 and verse 17. Where he says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He calls Christians unite. Be together. And then lastly, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
that we're called here to unite, but we unite around a cross. That's where our power lies, is in weakness and in God working through us and suffering and dying for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And so Paul is he's saying a lot here, but let me just give three things, three kind of next steps for us to think through as a church and how we live out this, this passage um, practically. The first being, start admitting how far you have to go. That Paul will later say to the Christians, if you think you're standing on your two feet, you're about to fall. Right? And as Christians, if you think you've arrived, or if you think you've gotten to a place of great maturity, it's probably a sign you actually haven't even started the journey yet. And yet that's, that's not how we work so much of the time as Christians, is it? I mean, I would never say I've arrived, right, that I'm, I've got it all together, but I, I act like it. Right? I act like it when I, I, I say something hurtful to someone, I can't just apologize. I, I, I show that when I skip my morning prayer because I think I have, I have other things I just have to do before, before prayer. It shows every time that I see someone else fail and I just silently thank God I'm not like them. It's, it's so easy for pride to work its way into our hearts. And I think the one way that Christians, we Christians, actually have a really great tool to guard against that is confession. And we're called to confess our sins as Christians before one another, but also before God. And so at the start of a new year, a new church, let me just encourage a new habit for you. A daily, admit how far you have to go. And pray a prayer of, of confession every morning. Whether you're brushing your teeth, it's over your morning coffee, you're driving to work, whatever it is, just, just pray, God, I, I need you this morning. I've fallen short. I will fall short. This whole Christian thing, it was your idea anyway, and I need help. It's that daily rhythm, that daily confession reminds us and brings us back to this place. So none of this was our idea. And if that's true, we need God's help to live it out. So start admitting how far you have to go. Second, and really hear this one, commit to those around you. Don't miss what Paul says in verse 2. I brought it out earlier, but I, it's so, it's, it's just caught me. I had not seen this before, that he's speaking to the church, and he says they're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're saints together, not individually. This, this place corporately as a church is to be a place where we commit to one another. And so in a new church, right, we're all trying to figure out where's our place? Where do we serve? Where's our home? And, and let me just say, I'm committed to figuring out that process with you, whatever that is. Because one thing I feel compelled at as a pastor is that all of you, every person in this room, if Jesus has saved you, he's called you to serve his church. Right? That's why I can't wait to preach through the spiritual gifts in a few months. That's what Paul brings out the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. That what I love about the spiritual gifts, what the New Testament says about that, if you're a Christian, is that God takes normal people just doing normal things and equips them with the Spirit to have an impact on, on those around them, to serve those around them in a way that, that as, if, as if God himself is serving them. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be just a random question you ask someone else at Taco Bell after drum shopping. It totally changes that person's life. That God uses that moment, that care, that love for the other person and changes their life. And I just, if, if there's a conversation or a cup of coffee or lunch where I can help you think through and pray through with you what your gifts are, I would love to. Because that's one thing I have that I'm absolutely compelled by is that we need everyone in this, this room serving in however God's called you to. And, and not putting any expectations or limits on that, but God has equipped all of you, if you're a Christian, to serve his church. And so commit to those around you. Whatever that gift is, God has put it in your heart, in your life, to serve and to encourage and to build up those around you. He, he sanctifies us. He takes normal people with normal things, and he uses us in ways we could never be used if it was just us. 
So start admitting how far you have to go, date, or commit to those um, around you. And finally, thirdly, unite at the cross. That's really the heart of verse 10 and 17. Right? Paul's appealing to unity, and he ends by where we'll be next week, which is this long, long excursus on the cross and the power of the cross. And that's where you and I, we have to unite. Because the cross is the power of God. It's why Paul mentions Jesus in every, almost every verse in this chapter. You might have noticed Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, got mentioned a lot. That the Corinthians are divided, and the only thing that will put them back together is Jesus and his cross. And friends, that's the only place that will make, only thing that will make this place unique is Jesus and his cross. Is that if the gospel, Jesus, his message is at the center of everything you and I do. Because we all come to Jesus in the same way as beggars, as sinners in need of help. That's why there's an old hymn that I love. It's with the line, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? You can't look down on other people while you're kneeling at the cross, thanking Jesus for saving you. You just can't. There's no pride to be found at the foot of the cross. And that's where God will keep us together. Is at the foot of the cross. That's where he's called us to, is at the foot of the cross, to live in light of what he's done for us. And so in light of that reality, that's one thing we'll do a bit differently here at, at Shawnee than we, we did at, uh, that you did at Olathe or, um, or Leewood. If you come from Brookside, this will be a little bit more your rhythm. But our intention here is to do most uh, communion most weeks at the Shawnee campus. And you may wonder why, and, and let me just, there's lots of reasons, but let me throw out a couple that come from this text in particular. Um, and that's, we're a campus that hopes and already in some respects uh, to be, be filled with rich diversity. We have a, um, a, a, already an age group breakdown that's, that's really uh, wide-ranging, which is encouraging, right? We're not just young families. We're not just empty nesters. We're all across the spectrum. And so we have different backgrounds in here. And we also live in an area that has um, a very different racial and socioeconomic, diverse area. And we want to reflect the community that we're in. We want the poor, we want those who don't have the same color of skin to come and be a part of this place as well. And so a part of that process, right, is, is, is eating together. And I know communion, right, that's not the best meal in the world. I mean, we could do better than that. And yet there's something about coming to the table with people that weren't chosen or that you didn't choose that were chosen for you to eat a meal that you were invited to. You didn't choose to come. Jesus invited you there. And so our hope is as we gather weekly, everyone together, whoever they are, whoever ends up there with you, will become a family united around Jesus and not our age groups or our, our likes or our dislikes, but we'll be united around the cross and we'll be a church that's diverse and reflects this beautiful world God has made. So that's one, one reason. Second, communion, it keeps the gospel clear. Right, that we can mess everything else up on a Sunday morning. Right? I'm going to preach bad sermons. That's going to happen a lot, probably. Um, the, the music's not always going to connect with you, right? It's, it's just not. Something may go crazy in kids' ministry. You may have a baby spit up all over you. I don't know. Just, everything else could go wrong. But, but this one moment keeps the gospel clear. Why we're here. Right? This wasn't your idea. That it was his body broken for you. It was his body, or his body broken for you. His blood shed for you. That's why we're here. It was his idea. And so we want to, most weeks, gather around this table. To gather around and be reminded that he called us here. That he will keep us together. That this is his feast. And he's invited you here. And he wants you to come.